leads to a bit of a sort of, uh, especially if the right, you know, you have this sympathetic storm where you you get sort of highly aroused and and have this um, not in that way, Graham. <laughs> you know, a your of your the sympathetic eyebrows. system gets highly activated and you become tachycardic and inotropic. Hi everyone, uh, Graham and I are back to record an, another podcast. As per usual, usual operating schedule, I've just scraped him out of his office with little preparation <laughs> for what hopefully will be well, a little preparation uh, uh, on Graham's part, but um, I did try and prepare for this um, last week, so it's not completely fresh in my memory, but hopefully I can drag up um, the stuff that I read up about. You did give me an opportunity to go and purchase a coffee. That's right, yep. So, um, what's the date today? Just for... Uh, 29th of November, 2021. 29th of November, two, 2021. Mm. And uh, I was trying to think of... Because um, it's good to put these in because sometimes people listen to these a long time down the line. So what's happened recently... <clears throat> I wrote down a little note. I was going to go... I've been doing taking up a bit of swimming over the last 18 months and I was getting close to going for a ocean swim. I did, I did do one when I was on Rottnest. I was going to go down to Cottesloe and have a swim in the ocean. But then uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone got eaten off Port Beach and went... Unfortunately, it sounded like they literally did get eaten by a great white, so mm. that's put me off. Mm. I what think else? they only found his goggles. Yeah. Poor gentleman. Uh, what else? Just about. I'm just about ready for my booster dose. of. Uh, I had AstraZeneca when, when it first came out, so oh. I've had to wait a little bit longer. So I'm going to get my booster dose in a f- couple of days. Or if you listen to Norman Swan on uh, the ABC, it's, it's considerate of completing the full three-dose schedule I had a rather p- than a booster. I had a Pfizer booster a Pfizer. yeah three weeks and five days ago uh num- oh, right yeah yep um shot number three and uh i think i mounted quite a, a good immune response because i felt like i had plenty of circulating interferon yeah uh aching did you have to lie down for no i just moved like a um an older person yep um you know with back and <laughs> leg and buttock pain yeah. yeah it's a good sign that you're um so you've had three Pfizer's yeah yes i'm not sure what's going to happen when i have this uh, but i'm hoping i'll have a broad immunity because i'm going to have like, oh you get a pfizer booster don't you yeah yeah mm. who knows and there's this new strain coming out now but i reckon uh, no one knows what's going to happen in the future but hopefully it'll just be a yeah uh, another strain that is still susceptible to vaccines i did listen to a very i did listen to quite an interesting podcast by the mja uh, this morning, and it was based on the recent presentation they did from the uh, clinicians in the Nepean Hospital who've got plenty of experience now. Yep. And they've managed over 80 women with um, coronavirus infection. During pregnancy? During pregnancy. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yep. yep. It was about three minutes that they spoke about specific issues with respect to pregnancy. Is that and recorded? or? Yeah, it is recorded. Okay, we could play that in one of our Tuesday meetings. We're, we're busy boring the listeners now. Mm, it's <laughs> we're, play, we're planning our department yeah. <laughs> activities. No, 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 it's, it's freely available. It was, um, I think it was a little bit sponsored by a drug company with regards to a monoclonal antibody. I, ivermectin? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no. But it's good for clearing up all those um, intestinal infections you can, well, get, up, good you can you. get up north. It's good for your Norwegian scabies. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
There's a bit of that going around. <laughs> Crusted scabies, absolutely. Just like all the penicillin we throw around for uh, streptococcus is clearing mm-hmm. up some of the syphilis that's going around in WA at the moment. Yes. Okay, so um, most of the listeners will probably know what the topic is based on the title that I decided to give it, which I haven't done yet because they haven't edited the podcast. <laughs> but um, here's the scenario, Graham. To a 59-year-old woman with a hip history of hypertension. She's day one uh, post-laparoscopic surgery. And uh, she is in a, a high dependency area because she's a bit overweight and um, and got some risk factors for sleep apnea. Or maybe she's been told she has sleep apnea, but she doesn't use a CPAP or something like that. So there's some reason why she's down in uh, our ASCU or our high dependency area. This is a made-up case, but mm. it's sort of loosely based on a real case I was involved with a few years ago. Anyway, the, the uh, medical emergency team are called to her because uh, she is uh, suddenly, uh, or a very short period of time, becomes very short of breath. And when the team arrive, uh, she's sitting upright. Her heart rate is 115 per minute. She has some oxygen on, but her sat's despite that, and it's quite high flow. I don't know what sort of mask. Can choose a mask. It's turned up as high as it goes. <clears throat> her sat's are 84%. Her blood pressure is 210 over 110 and her respiratory rate is 35, and she's covered in sweat. She's wheezing, and, and it, if you listen to the stethoscope, it's all crackly and lots of rails and crackles and crepitations. Um, so what do you what do you think, Graham? Hmm. I'm a little concerned about this lady. <laughs> she's got a hypertensive crisis. <clears throat> yep. And she's got signs of um, cardiac compromise. Yeah. Heart failure. Yeah, so I it's... So it's and exactly right. So, it's, so that's what it looks like, and it's, that's what it's supposed to look like because it's a hypothetical case for, um, uh, you know, acute pulmonary edema. And uh, I guess we'll talk about the difference or the sort of dif- different differentiation of different sort of like subtleties around the presentation of pulmonary edema because um, this is part of what this um, whole condition is uh, trying to tease out is... Um, this acute sort of t- uh, type, which is um, you know, has different names and, and over the years has been called different things. Um, but first things first, um, when you see someone who's short of breath and hypoxic, you don't know that they've got pulmonary edema, do you? Because no. they don't they don't have a little name badge on their uh, on their uniform or at the end of the bed. Um, so what are the other things it could be? And to, to be honest, it's quite tricky, isn't it, when you see people with shortness of breath in, in reality? Because uh, there's lots of things can make you short of breath acutely. Oh, look, she could have aspirated and have yep. a laryngeal reflex negative pressure pulmonary edema. Yeah, that's right. She could have. I mean, she could have acute asthma, I suspect. Yep. But then there's all the other causes of. Um, oh yeah. Uh, prime, uh, you know, secondary hypertension. Yeah, that's right. She could have anything that makes you short of breath, and then because she's hypoxic and she's got badly controlled hypertension, mm. she bes- she's got a high blood pressure. Yeah. So actually, you can't make the diagnosis. No. You've got to keep a broad mind when you're dealing with people in, in a situation like this yeah. um, as to what's going on um, and try to make sure you figure out what's going on because obviously the treatment's going to be completely different. Um, so how would you decide... <clears throat> well, what would you do? Uh to try and tease out what you think is going on. Obviously, you're going to treat uh, some some things at the same time as trying to figure out what's going on. But you know, um, oxygen is good. Yeah. Um, but what would you, let's, let's just forget about the treatment for a second. What? Uh, how would you? Is she already? What would you use in the? Is she already established situation? on CPAP because of her OSA? Uh, let's say no. But 
Okay, because I think CPAP would probably help her. Yeah, yeah. By whatever means. So whether you use, um, you know, like a water circuit, yep. um, you know, Mapleson C mask or um, dedicated CPAP equipment. Yeah. Uh, here where you have um, the Hamilton transport ventilator, which yes. we can easily set up as a, a temporary BiPAP or CPAP machine. Mm. That sounds good. What or we what? could bring it to theatre and use our um, anaesthetic yeah. circuit. Yep. What uh, exactly. would you like to do to try and tease out what the uh, differential diagnosis is? Well, you know. yeah, no, I mean, the things that help at the point of care yep. are things like ultrasound. Yep. Ultrasound of the lungs, ultrasound of the heart. Yep. Um, you know, then you just want to... Because uh, that would help. How would that help you? You can die, You could well, exclude like, a pneumothorax? Absolutely. Yep. I can exclude pneumonia. Yep. Um, well, sorry, I can identify a diffuse process versus a localised process. Yep. Um and uh, looking at the heart, I can see how the left ventricle's um, functioning yep. and how the right ventricle's functioning. Yep. Um, and then look at the anatomy of the chambers, look at the valves. I can, <coughs> and I can do that reasonably quickly. Yeah. Um, from there, then I want to treat a blood pressure. Yep. And uh, be mindful uh, to use drugs carefully to um, okay. avoid any other problems. Okay, so let's just assume that, because um, we don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole and waste time, but mm-hmm. let's assume that you do uh, decide on the diagnosis being um, pulmonary edema. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about the nomenclature next. Um, but on the, like a bedside ultrasound, usually people do a, like a, a, um, a, a portable chest X-ray or more increasingly now definitely people use um, point-of-care ultrasound on the lungs. And this is a very good condition to diagnose with that. In fact, it's... Um, I think most of the literature supports that you know a bedside ultrasound is probably better than a portable chest X-ray in diagnosing uh, this condition. Yeah, more I mean, sensitive and specific. There's a, there's a few biases. You yeah. know, after hours, it's not easy to get X-ray in our hospital. Yep, we have That's a right. service that comes from another hospital, which takes at least twenty minutes for a yeah. person usually to attend and provide. Um, you know, yep. at end of end of the bed um, X-ray of the chest. Yep. So that's kind of why I say what I say. So yeah, and what yeah. you um, what would you see on your bedside point of care ultrasound? I expect to see lots and lots of comets or beelines. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in all and, in all fields. Or, and if anyone's listening, there is multiple free YouTube videos by respiratory physicians and other very clever people explaining how to do um, lung ultrasound on, on YouTube, and they're, they're all very a lot of them are quite high quality if you pick the right ones. And, um, it's a pretty low-hanging fruit, isn't it? Doing a lung, lung ultrasound for diffuse pulmonary edema is actually pretty easily... Uh, learning how to do that is pretty easily obtainable by anyone who uses ultrasound for other things, hmm. I think. That's yeah, my personal Yeah, it's very helpful. Um, and I've definitely used it and diagnosed pulmonary edema quite a few times with it. Um, and chest x-rays, you know, you don't throw them out. Um, they're useful, but mm. they're, like you say, they involve radiation, calling someone in, takes a long time. And actually, they're not quite as sensitive. Like, I have seen people who have had pretty normal-looking chest X-rays, but you put the ultrasound on, and you can see that they have interstitial fluid. Mm. Um, all and, right. and usually the, the, the X-rays we get in our high-dependency unit are um, you know, portable. Yeah. They're, they're not PA-standing. Yeah, that's right. And it's uh, difficult. And this woman is, yeah. like, in, ex, uh, in severe distress. She's obese. She's sitting up. She's not holding still very well. Mm. All sorts of things make the image image acquisition less than optimal. Yeah. All right. Um, the nomenclature. So pulmonary edema is basically, that's just like means interstitial fluid in your lungs, isn't it? Oh, and sometimes that spills over into the actual alveoli itself. 
Um, so what we're going to focus in on is those, this sort of like acute sort of sudden pulmonary edema syndrome, which has, I think from reading the literature, three sort of main names. I think the, the older name is like flash pulmonary edema. Yes. Most people have heard that. Yeah. Talked about. We've all seen it. <clears throat> the new name is sympathetic crushing acute pulmonary edema, which is, um, uh, seems to be using, used a lot in the emergency medicine uh, literature. And then in some of the sort of cardiology um, uh, literature, they talk about hypertensive pulmonary edema. And I think, um, so it is quite important to, they like to differentiate this because the underlying pathophysiology is sometimes different in that, in that um, this condition that we're talking about now um, is primarily not a fluid overload condition. It's more to do with um, afterload in the left ventricle not coping with the increased afterload, which then leads to sort of back pressure in the lungs leading to pulmonary edema, as opposed to if you you see someone who's, you know, uh, is on hemodialysis and has gone on a bender for a week and skipped four of their (laughs) dialysis sessions Sessions. and has gained six kilos, yeah, or ten kilos or something, and then they've slowly become more and more short of breath. Potassium, uh, potassium eight, yeah, or even uh, women that we see in this hospital preeclamptics who become very, very edematous and yes. slowly become short of breath. Um, these conditions are not mutually exclusive. People can slowly accumulate fluid, and then suddenly they have some sort of crisis, which sets off a sympathetic response, which then leads to hypertension, and then suddenly they deteriorate. So you can have both. There's probably patients who are sort of in between the both. Um, we're going to sort of focus on them on the. The, the acute, uh, can, you know, flash pulmonary edema escape patients, though, uh, mainly because I think most people are pretty familiar with like pulmonary edema and giving diuretics and that sort of thing. So this is going to be more about how to focus on this acute condition. Um, all right, Roger, well, do you ever listen to the MCRIT podcast? Uh, so this is so I did. Uh, I got the idea to do this because uh, this episode because I listened to um, uh, the. A podcast that is um, related to it. Let's say respiratory intensivist um, who runs um, a website or Pomgrit. But okay. he and this other guy have got this internet uh, book of critical care medicine, and they just go through different conditions. And they were talking about this. And it re- it remi- as I was listening to it, I was thinking of like four or five different patients I've looked after over the years, and thinking, "Oh yeah, no, that's exactly what happened." Mm. Yeah, because yeah. I think it's been a topic on MCRIT. Yeah, past. probably has. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so, but quite uh, the bit that I found a bit interesting. So, I like to you know, think about the um, the physiology. I don't know about you, Graham, but so one of the things I was saying is that maybe the um, you know most patients who develop this because we see patients walking around with blood pressure of two hundred over hundred, and you see fit young healthy women with preeclampsia who spike blood pressures like that. Yes, they don't go to pulmonary edema. So why do some people, when they get really hypertensive and sympathetically activated like this, uh, go into pulmonary edema? So basically they do have to have an underlying predisposition. So the left ventricle has to have some sort of problem where it can't cope with that afterload. So that could be systolic or diastolic dysfunction. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think more commonly they think, um, if you read the sort of more academic literature on this condition, is that the diastolic dysfunction is... is um, Important because the, the left ventricle can't relax uh, relax enough. Yeah, uh, uh, well, this is probably like that'd be a good um, topic in itself. Talking about diastolic um, failure or dysfunction, it can't relax, and therefore the pressure gets transmitted backwards through the left atrium and into the lungs. Mm. 
Um, and this condition is strongly associated with people who have hypertension, who have often then they get left ventricular hypertrophy, and then once you get left ventricular hypertrophy, you often get diastolic dysfunction because the, the myocardial muscle is so thick and big it has trouble relaxing properly. Um, and it's quite there's a strong association with people with renal artery stenosis. I'm not sure what that is, why that is. It could just be um, they have some sort of myocardial link or something, but I have to read up on that. But also another interesting comment they made when, uh, was that um, often patients have a normal right ventricle. So what they have is a left ventricle that has trouble relaxing and taking the cardiac output, and the really good right ventricle pushing all this fluid into it. It leads to a bit of a sort of, uh, especially if the right, you know, you have the sympathetic storm where you, you get sort of highly aroused and, and have this, um, not in that way, Graham. <laughs> Your sympathetic system gets highly activated and you become tachycardic and inotropic. And obviously your right ventricle starts going crazy and pumping all this blood through to the left side. Left side can't handle it because it can't push it out because the systemic pressure is still room 10. And then suddenly you go into pulmonary edema. Log jam in the pulmonary circulation. Yeah, and then you get hypoxic and that makes things even worse. And before Mm. you know it, you're in a vicious spiral uh, where uh, your body's response to hypoxia and... um, and you know, crisis is to get you know more and more yeah, sympathetically um, activated, and that can make things worse. So that's sort of how they think the pathophysiology works. And there's lots of things that can trigger it. So you have to have the underlying predisposition, and then actually lots of things can trigger it. You could um, miss your antihypertensive drugs. You could go and shoot up some cocaine and methamphetamine, and that is definitely mm. what I have. I have definitely seen this mm. with a couple of patients doing that sort of thing. <coughs> I'm sure lots of listeners have too. Pain, acute, acute MI, anxiety, um, lots of different things. It can occur in uh, preeclampsia. Yes. Mm. Yep. Um, have you have you got? Any, well, I was going to ask you if you got any good anecdotes. I'll tell you about some of mine in the end. I mean, only the the, the sweaty person who turns up in the emergency <laughs> department when you're a junior <laughs> ED doctor, yeah. and um, and they have you know flash pulmonary edema. Yeah, that, that was the term I used at that time in my career. Yep. Yes, I think it's always that's somewhere what I, that's uh, what between heard, about heard you know, this. four and seven in the morning. They come in. Yeah, all this, sweaty, purple. This term escapes and me. hypertensive. I, flash primary edema. I quite like it, even though they, they mm. seem to say that they it's falling out of favour. It's sort of you know what it means when when you hear it. I, that, that's what I've always thought it was. Um, so I can remember we had a case um, three or four years ago in the middle of the night. A pregnant woman came into MAFAO, our maternal fetal assessment unit here, um, and she had, she had um, this condition, acute pulmonary damage. She came in, she was really short of breath, um, hypertensive. She'd just been using speed, uh, methamphetamine and mm. cocaine, and she had this long. She was morbidly obese. She had lots of risk factors uh, for this condition, and she was in a bad way in... Um, she was very, when we talk about treatment, she was very difficult to treat and she wasn't very cooperative. She, didn't, she was struggling to cope with, a, with an oxygen mask, let alone slapping on <laughs> CPAP, unfortunately she was. And uh, so we'll talk about the treatment in, in a minute, but some of the treatments, she was amazingly resistant to um, GTN. Oh my God, we gave her, uh, oh, I've never given anyone so much GTN in my life and it didn't seem, <laughs> it didn't seem to touch the edges because yes. she, she had a... I mean, oh, she obviously. had a toxic, um, a toxidrome, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she did, yeah. 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 Um, okay, shall we talk about 
Uh, and then obviously I have uh, more recently as well. I've seen uh, we had a, a woman in her 50s who was in our high dependency unit who'd had lap, laparoscopic surgery, I think, who went into flash primary edema overnight. Um, uh, it's unclear what the trigger was. They um, We worked her up and she had this like really small area that might have been a PE afterwards. Okay. But um, I'm sure she, uh, it was a while ago, I'm sure she must have had diastolic heart failure mm. from hypertension and, yes. or OSA or something like that. <coughs> Um, okay, what else? Oh, we did have someone, this is an aside, this is not scape, but we did have someone who had a procedure recently who uh, was a uh, resection of an interuterine septum uh, hysteroscopically who was given um, lots of um, normal saline irrigation by the, during mm. the surgical procedure who absorbed five litres of fluid and she woke up in recovery very hypoxic with um, pink frothy edema. From, and that's, so that's obviously different. Yes. So that's not an afterload problem. That is fluid overload. Mm. Yeah. So that's too much, um, uh, too much uh, volume in your circulation. And that's the same kind of process that the people who skip dialysis get. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Or people who develop right heart failure and um, the diuretic dose is wrong, and they just slowly accumulate fluid until yeah. they become pulmonary edema. Mm. Um. <sighs> Okay. Yeah, well, do you know the difference between... <laughs> okay. between as soon as I pause, I knew there's yeah. a joke coming. The difference between a black-eyed pea and a chickpea. What? Well, black-eyed peas, they can sing us some songs, right? <laughs> chickpeas, they can only hum us one. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a good... <clears throat> um, have you met our new uh, vegan friend? What, Megan? Megan the vegan? I'm no. sure I told you about her before. <laughs> <laughs> that was a shocker. Okay, let's keep going. Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna, that, was, that one was from my daughter. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. Okay, so um, treatment. <laughs> so we'll go through the treatment. So, yeah, the, so evidence-based, there's an, there is um, some literature out there when they've um, – I think there was a combined um, paper written by – uh, Society of Emergency Medicine in, in North America and uh, Cardiology and they outlined the evidence for uh, this condition and the number one recommendation because there's overwhelming support in the literature is exactly what Graham said, CPAP or BiPAP um, so, that, so obviously that helps treat the hypoxia it actually decreases the afterload oh, it helps offload the ventricle helps um, uh, in, num- in a number of ways, decreases yeah. work of breathing, work of breathing, yeah, all those things. So mm-hmm. that is like the most evidence-based treatment, and people sort of forget about that and get excited about giving GTN infusions and stuff. But actually, that's probably the most important thing to do. Um, and you've got to sometimes you have to cre- uh, crank up the positive end expiratory pressure quite high. So most of them, uh, the advice you know start with five or eight, but you might have to turn up to fifteen or twenty centimeters. Obviously, that's the CPAP itself, if mm. you're just using CPAP, or that's the, the PEEP if you're using BiPAP. Yeah. Um, 20 seems a bit high. It does seem a bit high, but apparently that you, sometimes you might need to go that high. Mm. So that's not saying you should go that high. Obviously, you can have cardiovascular effects, um, but, you know, that's probably what you want. I don't know. Um, what was I going to say? You feel the stomach. So sometimes, yeah, that's right. So that's mm. what they talk about. If you go over 15 or 20, you're worried about gastric insufflation. Um, the other problem with uh, CPAP and BiPAP and someone who's acutely distressed what's, is, is that sometimes they don't want something on their face. Exactly. So that can be difficult to manage. That usually involves a little bit of counselling. 
Yeah, and sometimes a bit of pharmacological and, and a little bit of pharmacological help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> now, interestingly, what drug would you use? There? Yeah, so interesting. I did look this up. There have been studies and, uh, and uh, fairly strong statements about the fact that um, the use of morphine mm-hmm. for acute pulmonary edema is no longer recommended because, although it takes away that sort of, and it makes patients feel better, and probably ph- physicians too. There seems to be a bit of evidence that. Um, uh, outcomes may be worse. Okay. Which sort of is interesting because mm. I find that interesting because mm. I know that when I was a junior doctor, that was taught as the, one of the treatments for and morphine yep. and oxygen. That's right. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, so they do say, you know, maybe it might be useful if you need to give someone something like a bit of fentanyl or some sort of pharmacological help to cope with the BiPAP or CPAP mask. Mm-hmm. That sort of makes more sense to yes. me. Yes. Um, but just giving morphine and furosemide is probably not the treatment for this acute con- um, condition. Um, <clears throat> so the mainstay after after you've you know in, uh, instituted those um, respiratory therapies is decreasing the blood pressure uh, and trying to do it rapidly because that is what allows the left ventricle to empty and therefore allows all the fluid that's backed up in the lungs to drain out and you know um, uh, take the pressure off. Um, so literally uh, and they talk about using GTN um, so how much would you use Graham I've got I've written it down I, I did make some notes about this last week about how to make it up I think you put uh, 50 milligrams in 50 mils and then run it at a rate starting yeah. probably 30 mils an hour but titrate down yep. to response or up to response yeah that's exactly right actually mm. so that I think that's, that's, that's I haven't written that, it down that makes sense to me somewhere. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a huge dose, actually. It's a huge dose. dose, It's the equivalent of a, um, you know, a sublingual dose per minute if you start at that rate. Yeah, that's right. So it seems like a huge dose, actually, Mm. but it's not. So usually when you're giving someone a sublingual spray, you know, you're trying to cause a bit of venodilation, but you're not trying to have... When when someone has this acute hypertensive crisis, you actually need quite a lot of GTN. Mm -hmm. So obviously you need to be very closely and, and... continuously monitor the blood pressure so ideally an arterial line if you are a, yes someone who is pretty good at putting them in quickly you have an ultrasound and you know i imagine in, here in our hospital we would have one in pretty quick um or you know just set your blood pressure cuff to cycle like every one or two minutes mm. uh and yeah often you do need really big doses like up, up to i think they talk about um uh you know um one to three milligrams, so that's 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 micrograms in, in the first sort of four or five minutes, I think. I'm yeah. trying to, I'll put a link to some of the, um, the doses they talk about. But often, once you break the, uh, the, crisis, the sympathetic crisis and get the blood pressure starts coming down and then the hypoxia starts getting better, you've got to be ready to wind GTM back quite quickly um, because they, could, they can actually even become hypotensive if you're not careful. But having said that, GTM is a very short acting, and if you turn it off, mm. Gets Usually it gets better. It gets metabolized and they get better very quickly. So it seems to be pretty safe. <clears throat> um, so you shouldn't. So the take-home message is when you're using these GTN infusions, and uh, is to not be too timid when they're in the in a, uh, extremis. Mm. Stand by the bedside. But you've got to stand by the bedside. It's got to be done by someone who's thought about it beforehand. Mm. And you know, anyway. Uh, and remember, CPAP and BiPAP are probably the main things. So the other things are diuretics. That's controversial. It depends whether you think they're fluid overload or not. Because if it's just purely sympathetic uh, mediated, you know, they de- they even say that sometimes people can have like um, 
normal, you know, euvolemic or even slightly hypovolemic. It's just that the sympathetic crisis has caused this high blood pressure, uh, systemic blood pressure, which means the left ventricle can't empty. Now mm. they've got pulmonary edema. They're not fluid overloaded. So giving these patients diuretics doesn't make as much sense. But so you just got to think about the patient in front of you. If, if they, if you think they're fluid overloaded, then it makes sense to give a diuretic as well. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and also, if fairly strongly worded, is avoid beta blockers. Because um, that is something we do use for um, lowering people's blood pressure. But um, really, you don't want to use any sort of negative inotropic agents. Uh, so they don't recommend that either. So oxygen, morphine, and furosemide, traditional treatment, probably a little bit slow. Yes. And it seems like morphine is bad uh, or is associated with uh, poorer outcomes. Um, although a lot of I must admit, over the, I have seen cases over the years where it got better with oxygen, morphine, and furosemide. So she'd always take these things with a grain of salt. But um, I think for those more dramatic presentations, though, CPAP, yeah, um, yeah. GTN. I can think of. Mm. I can definitely. You know, sometimes you see people who are like look bad, but they don't look like they're going to die. And then you've. I'm sure you've seen a few. Maybe um, I can remember seeing a, a few people. I think this person is going to die. Mm. <clears throat> and so I guess there's devils in the detail. Um, anyway, so yeah, so the woman we had, uh, the, the Matthews I was telling you about, you know, we 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 hung up like a um, bottle of GTN. I don't even know how much was in that, but we basically, I just started turning the infusion up, and we emptied it into it over about ten minutes, like the whole fifty milligrams, and it did absolutely nothing. <laughs> I think her blood pressure went from two hundred to one hundred and seventy, and she was still having trouble breathing. And then we started giving. Um, uh, we were like, okay, well, she's pregnant. She mm. maybe she has taken meth, but maybe she's got preeclampsia. Yeah. Well, let's give her some preeclamptic antihypertensives. And they did are slower acting. Did you give her li- They are slower acting. I think we did give libitalol, mm. but I, I find libitalol a bit this week. Mm. Um, uh, so we gave hydralazine, and actually that started to kick in, and eventually things got better. So mm. good old hydralazine. But mm. the hydralazine is not a rapid no. drug. No. But it seems to work. Yeah. And her, I tell you, the GTN did nothing, and the hydralazine worked. So... That's complete anecdote. Please don't change any practice based on that. <laughs> but we are, we are looking after a woman in the third trimester, and that is a traditional antihypertensive. Mm. Um, so that was a good story. Um, so I think we've covered all the main points. What about um, patients on uh, Viagra? That used to be yeah. a, uh, a concern. Yeah, that's right with GTN. GTN. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, the only, so patient, you're not the only to, male patients in this hospital on Viagra understand the neonates with... Um, <laughs> With pulmonary hypertension. hypertension. Yeah. yeah. No, it is a contraindication. Uh, so if someone is taking uh, one of those phosphodiesterase inhibitors, you're not allowed to give them uh, nitrates, are you? So, um, yeah, that's a word of caution. So you, I guess you'll have to use other antihypertensives. Yep. Mm. Uh, possibly you know, try and avoid beta blockers. That seems to be the, not the one to give. So... Yeah, I don't know. Are you allowed to give sodium nitroprusside if you're on Viagra? I think you can. Yeah. But you've got to be careful. Yeah. Mm. Sodium nitroprusside, I haven't seen that used for a long time, but I'm sure in ICU they might do. Yes. Um, You've got to put all the foil around it. It's light sensitive and gives you cyanide poisoning and Mm. all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, In America, I know they have lots of uh, intravenous um, calcium channel blocker that you can give as an infusion, a short-acting one, I don't think talk about that so just so so if people want to go off and read about stuff they might see reference to that but i don't think it's available here in australia yeah i've never seen it used yeah i can't remember what it's called actually because we don't have it <clears throat> um 
What else could you use? No, Probably hydra- just hydralazine. Hydralazine. Yeah. yeah. There are um, other drugs like um, that you use in, um, that I have seen used, um, but I know we no longer have, like no, fentolamine, which yeah. was used for um, people with pheochromocytoma surgery mm-hmm. and things like that. And for a while there, we did, it was we used difficult to. It, to, it was difficult theater. to obtain, but um, yeah, we used to have an ampule in, uh, in our fridge here, mm. which would go off every two years, and we replace it. But every now and then, we'd use it. Exactly. Mm. And we have had. I think we did have someone with a pheochromocytoma in pregnancy a few years ago. Um, took a while for us to diagnose it. I think. Okay, we've prattled on for way too long. Mm. We've already cracked our jokes. Mm. I think we've we've blown it all. I've got nothing to finish with. Honestly, <laughs> I've got another joke, but I can't remember. I sh- okay, oh, it's an interesting when, topic. When I asked you. my friend how he's doing, he said, "Man, I'm just happy to be breathing." I told him he should have bigger aspirations. <laughs> 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 I just googled that one last week. All right, you were going to say something more. No, I'm just going to say it's a very good topic. Thank you very much for. Um, yeah. I think there's something that people will come across during their careers, and it's good to have a th- uh, think about it. All right. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Roger. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time.